you're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Hello and welcome to Rock Bottom Country Club in 2020, where today we're going to help you learn how to crank up the power on your BS filter. I'm especially skilled in the area of BS filtering as I once worked for an organization known as Fourth PsyOps, an army unit specializing in psychological operations. To do this job, I had to take a course in writing propaganda. But once they realized I had worked in TV news, they made me an instructor. We produced lots of films aimed at swaying minds. This happened whenever some genius double PhD from a think tank in DC, or one of those alphabetic agencies, showed up, and then they would talk for six hours into my camera. It was my job to boil down all the verbiage into a watchable 45 minutes. We called these productions area studies. And as I recall, I made about 80 of these on a wide range of topics, from titles like Pashtun Separatism in Kurdistan to How to Pack Your Ruck on a Mule. Anyway, out of all these masterpieces I shot, my favorite was Pattern Recognition and Analysis. It was a film made for special units, and that's all I'm going to say about that, except that Pattern Recognition is a valuable skill. If you're a turf specialist, like a golf course superintendent or a pathology professor, you practice pattern recognition all the time. It's valuable for detecting turf disease and deciphering what may have caused it. Pattern recognition will expose fake excuses that your crew uses to avoid big projects. It can reveal when equipment is reaching end of lifespan, and it'll help you prepare for replacement before it burns up on the first tee in full view of the clubhouse geniuses. One of my favorite ways to use pattern recognition is when some entity, be it an alphabet like ABC News or any other, is shoveling enough bovine processed material in your direction to choke a tub grinder. With pattern recognition, you can quickly recognize the bovine processed material, whether it's in the form of social media Kool-Aid or just plain media manure. The first clue that you're being fed bovine substance is the constant repetition of a phrase or sometimes just a single word. This can range from a particular event to an accusation to a slogan or a catchphrase. That, if repeated enough, it becomes part of the story. And the person on the street's response, whenever a mic is shoved in their face, will be to parrot whatever they've been hearing repeatedly. In 2020, the amplitude of media-produced bovine substance is so overwhelming that the, the pattern has been obfuscated, leaving a cluster of collateral mental damage so deep that Any attempt at analysis is an exercise in futility. Trying to get to the rock bottom of the actual problem results in the Kool-Aid swillers shouting even more slogans that they don't understand, all while violently accusing anyone who does not agree with them. If you want a more efficient BS filter, try this. When you see this pattern occur, turn off your social media and do not respond. The best strategy is to go take a walk in the forest. A long walk. How long? Well, you should probably go so far and so long that you need to take a ruck with extra socks, foot powder, a couple of snacks, and a thermos of tea or coffee, or whatever it is you like. After several hours, your ability to filter out social media crap will return, and you should be able to think clearly. Repeat this several times before returning to any kind of a screen. If you're unable to go for a hike without your screen, it might be too late for your filter. In that case, just go ahead and start memorizing the various slogans so popular on social media and 
develop a taste for Kool-Aid. Rock Bottom Radio is brought to you by Dryject, one of the most brilliant concepts for putting surface management ever. Give them a call. Tell them Mama sent you. Hey, Willie. It's finally the 2020s. I like saying that, the 2020s. Y'all look, it's raining again. It's cold enough to snow. Hey, Ludell, IQ test results came back. What'd they say? They came back negative. All right. Oh, no. Here comes Mr. Boyle. I guess he's going to rage at us for not picking up the cigarette butts in the bunkers. Fester N. Boyle. Wonder what the N stands for. Numb skull. Howdy, folks. I was on my way over to Top Golf and thought I'd look in on the bottom of golf. If you want to play, you gotta walk. No carts going out today. No, I just figured I'd check in, maybe offer a few suggestions. You know, I used to be the green chair over at Stinking Pond, and I have considerable expertise in matters of golf. What suggestions you got? You still want a ball washer and a bench on every tee? Among other amenities, but first we should discuss the problem with cigarette butts in the same traps. Especially on 13. I'm going to make some more coffee. I've already made great progress in solving the cigarette butt tossers. And what is your solution? You going to fill in another bunker and side over it? I put my deer hunting camera up in a tree on 13. Come here and take a look at my computer. You'll be surprised who the guilty party is. Uh, who is it? It's you. Well, I was just, uh, you know, putting them there so you could see if your crew was raking the traps. Mommy, you want your fry pan? Fester, listen up. Don't never come back here again. If I even see you within a mile of this course, I'll pop you with a hog tranquilizer, dress you up in a skirt and lipstick, and tie you to a lawn chair out by the highway. Remember when Aunt Femi did that to old man Spieler? She hung a sign on him and said, I am a communist. Back then, that was a mean thing to do, but nowadays it'd get you elected governor. What did old man Spieler do to get excommunicated from rock bottom? As I recall, he was a serial commode clogger. I think I'll just leave. I don't feel appreciated here. Pretty perceptive of you. Hey, y'all. What's up, Cletus? No carts out today. I ain't here to play. I just want to collect on my golf insurance. Your what? My golf insurance. I bought a policy from Ludale. What is golf insurance? You know, insurance. I bought a policy that says if I ever have a bad round or play too slow or weather puts us on car path only. This or... has got to be the dumbest thing I ever heard. Ain't no dumber than green speeds over 10, and that's pretty popular. Ludell, I wish you would just shut your big yap. Listen, Mom, I've been selling extended swing warranties to all my golf students, and I've been making serious money. What happened to your lost ball insurance deal? Well, now that was a bad idea. Almost bad as my dating service for golf industry folks. Turf is only. You know, the ratio was way off. I ain't paying out no golf claims. That's so 1970. Wake up, folks. Gotta get woke. It's all about the money. Now what about my claim, Ludale? You don't qualify. Rain's act of God. Ain't covered. Well, then I want my four dollars back. Ain't never dealt with insurance companies much, have you? What are you doing, really? I'm writing my next column. It's about crowd wisdom and the future of golf. What is crowd wisdom? Is that like mob mentality? No, crowd wisdom is when you watch the internet real close and see what folks are talking about. You use your pattern recognition and analyze the vibe the majority of people are putting out and 
It'll tell you what's likely to happen. Is that how you predicted Trump would win even when the poll said Hillary was up by 99%? Uh, yeah. Well, what is the crowd wisdom telling us about golf? Uh, in a nutshell, a pattern that first appeared back in 04 is accelerating. There's a lot of chatter on the golf forums, and I'm not talking about the snooty architecture enthusiast forum either. There's a lot of chatter about playing a simpler form of golf, not just simpler rules. People are discovering that simple things are more satisfying and more sustainable than complex things. So we should be simple-minded like uh, Ludell? The pendulum always swings back. Things rarely move in a linear pattern. They ebb and flow, rise and fall, zig and zag. You know, like politics and the climate. So what are you telling us? Golf needs to go retro? I saw a poster the other day that said, When phones were tied down with wire, people were free. What the hell is he saying? Speaking of them phone pooters, I was over at Stinkin' Pond Country Club applying for a job, and their superintendent lets the golf course staff use cell phones for comms instead of wasting money on radios. I don't trust our crew with cell phones. Why not? Hardly any unsupervised individual who's supposed to be digging up an irrigation break will sit on the phone playing games and tweeting and textifying to their friends instead of working. I like radios. Hey! Where's Buddy? I went down to the shop and he's not there. He's probably still in jail. For what? Oh, we went to the gym and signed up for hot and naked yoga class and it was dark when we went in and, well... Well what? Well, they weren't hot or naked. Bunch of blue hairs doing transcendental meditation and listening to the doors. But why did Buddy get arrested? Use your giant brain, Einstein. We was appropriately dressed for hot naked yoga when we went in. How come you didn't get arrested too? On account I'm used to being swarmed by women. Buddy just stood there and got pulled down like a wildebeest separated from the herd by a pack of hungry lions. You know in lion culture it's the females that do the hunting, right? I'll go bail Buddy out. Meanwhile, Willie, you do story time. Okay. It's story time. Since missiles have been in the news lately... I've been reminiscing about my time as a golf course rocket scientist. It was long, long ago on a golf course in West Tennessee. I was 15 years old and a seasoned veteran of the golf industry. I'd been working in several golf course skills for roughly three and a half years since the tender age of 11. That's when I entered golf as a club washer, ball hawk caddy, and a summer greens mower. During the next few years, I learned to run the pro shop counter, mow fairways, rake sand, top dress, push cores off greens, sling blade creek banks, change cups, fertilize greens and teas, and I even worked in food and beverage. I hated that last one. At this country club in West Tennessee, it was a dinky little nine-holer scarred by snake-filled drainage ditches and burdened with an architecture so stifling that most who played there often considered taking up some other sport, like roller derby or pig wrestling but I served in every capacity except bartender I even had to teach golf to little pack monsters which was a form of daycare dad thought up in order to increase his lesson revenue the course was surrounded by cotton fields and a few shacks that dated way back to the post-confederate era one shack was the domain of the local star of the high school football team a mean, vicious middle linebacker named Jelsick Isles. The shack was known as a clubhouse, and it was rumored all sorts of debauchery took place there. There was a fenced-in pond guarded by terrifying attack dogs where, supposedly, 
cheerleaders sunbathed without full coverage, and beer was available in massive quantities. Oh, the envy I suffered. I was a mere 10th grade defensive back and a golf course peasant, so I wasn't eligible for membership in Jelsic's clubhouse. I was, however, eligible for a serious butt-kicking, or as it was known in technical terms, an ass-whooping, delivered at the hands of Jelsic and his gaggle of worshipful minions, oafs, knaves, and varlets. This happened because I was guilty of several violations of local code. First, I may have gazed dreamily upon the cheerleader known as Robin B., who was dating Jelsic. Also, I was guilty of being the FNG, or the new guy, and finally I was singled out and tagged as a golf nerd, which apparently was worse than the other two combined. Now, I know it's hard for you young guys to believe, but back then, circa 1970, golf was not cool. While cruising around one night with my fellow crew worker, Walker, in the tradition of American graffiti, the only way us golf nerds could go forth and seek female companionship, which was a pitifully futile gesture given our lack of situational awareness and no social standing whatsoever. Anyway, Walker and I encountered Jelsic and his posse. A wild chase ensued, whereupon we were trapped on a dead-end road. We were also unskilled in defensive driving. Caught in the parking lot of a local dairy, we were dragged from the cab of Walker's old truck, a 53 Ford, if memory serves, and we were set upon by the local anti-golf riffraff. After a reasonably ineffective beating, because you know, our captors had been drinking PBR, known in those days to be less flavorful than, say, engine cleaner, Anyway, I escaped by running across a pasture full of dairy cows. It was pitch dark, no moon. You know, cows in the middle of the night resemble dinosaurs or dragons, and somehow I managed to escape by weaving in and out of the cows at high speed. My pursuers, fortified with PBR, had no such ability to weave, and they collided with several cows, thus slowing their efforts. I abandoned Walker to his fate, and I headed back to town on foot covered in cow poop. Walker, also on foot, went back to his farm and procured an old lever-action rifle, whereupon he stalked and killed Jelsic's Camaro as it sat quietly in the front yard, doing no harm to anyone. I yearned for similar revenge, but being a tenth-grade golf nerd and also a chicken, I determined that the vengeance had to be covert, so that I didn't spend every weekend of the next fifty years running through cow pastures. My invisible evil twin, Yidnar, whose motto was Vengeance is mine, saith Yidnar, suggested ballistic missiles filled with ground beef tainted with X-lax. So we embarked upon a career of rocket science. The first rocket, a Christmas present from Dad, exploded on takeoff as we launched it from the practice screen. This is the point where I learned to only experiment with rockets on Mondays when the course was closed. Three failed rockets later, I successfully launched a rocket toward Jelsic's clubhouse. As I had flunked every single math class since kindergarten, I couldn't quite grasp trajectory science, and the rocket went far beyond the clubhouse target, burying itself deep in a cotton field. Kind of like, well, you know, modern Iranian missiles, so I feel better about myself in that regard. Eventually, I had to resort to sneaking up to Jelsic's perimeter and lobbing X-lax-laden raw burgers over the fence. The results were excellent. Lots of doggy diarrhea throughout the clubhouse, ruined shag carpet, and in an unplanned, unintended consequence, the cheerleaders abandoned Jelsic's pond and gathered at the country club pool, where I often volunteered the lifeguard. 
I should have just gone with the tossing stuff over the fence plan in the first place, but I will admit to being blinded by the lure of technology. You can probably see why I'm so anti-tech now. So for the next few years, I immersed myself in Monday afternoon rocket science. Younger brother Mike joined the firm, bringing his intense work ethic and engineering ability with him. Mike was considerably smarter than me, and he took our golf course rocketry much further than I could have by myself. We experimented with more and more powerful rocket engines, shooting our missiles thousands of feet into the air, thrilled by the roar of takeoff and the trail of smoke shot across the sky. Occasionally, golfers found themselves in danger as our rockets plummeted to the ground at supersonic speed. We had given up the use of the recovery parachute years before, because parachutes just made it easier for the rocket to hang up in a tree. Our reasoning as to the golfers was simple. The golf course was closed. Therefore, they weren't supposed to be there. And truthfully, the only golfers we saw on Mondays were usually golf pros. And if we killed a golf pro or two, what was the harm? After a few golf pros were nearly collateral damage, and then they whined to dad, we went back to installing parachutes. We also moved into two-stage rockets. Our last flight took place on the Muni east of Atlanta in roughly 1976. Mike had designed and built a two-stage monster with the biggest engines we could afford. He trimmed the stabilizers down to minimal levels, painted the thing red, and named it Thor. On a Monday afternoon, one warm winter day, we fired Thor, the greatest golf course rocket ever attempted up until that time. Thor screamed off the launch pad so fast that it left two of the stabilizers on the ground. It reached a height of about 15 feet, flipped over approximately 60 degrees, and then Thor's second stage fired. We stood in complete shock and awe. Yeah, we did that long before Cheney and Rumsfeld thought that up. We watched in terror as Thor went screaming into the forest towards our nearest neighbor, Lewis, an elderly African-American fellow who had retired from the phone company. We ran through the woods hoping that the missile had hit a tree or been deflected into outer space by a stout branch. Popping out in Lewis's yard, we were relieved to see that his house was still standing, but we couldn't find Thor. It was at that moment we saw Lewis sitting calmly on his porch with his grandchildren, having an afternoon snack. I didn't say anything, I just looked at Lewis. Opal, his wife, and the grandchildren didn't say anything either. They just slowly turned their heads in unison in the direction of the road, where embedded in the red clay bank, nose cone deep, was Thor, smoke still curling out of his engine. We quickly collected Thor and headed back across the yard, sheepishly waving at Lewis and family, hoping we hadn't traumatized the kids. As we entered the woods, I heard Lewis say, Well, Opal, they got missiles now. Do you need any more convincing that the neighborhood is on the decline? You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes.